Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about issues of international reputation, foreign policy, and a few other things along the way. And today, I guess it's one of those other things that we'll be focusing on, one of the big international issues facing the world right now, which is migration. Simon, how does migration figure in the lineup in the the Good Country Index? Is that one of the ways in which countries uh, show that they are good in inverted commas? Uh, Is there a way of tracking attitudes to migration? Yes, migration is a is a relatively easy one to include because there's a lot of very good data on it. We use the UNHCR data to include the number of refugees hosted in any given country, which is a, a quote unquote good behavior um, because you're um, you're helping people who who need help. Also, the number of refugees generated, which is a quote unquote ungood simply because uh, if conditions for people are sufficiently bad in your domestic setting that they have to go in in large numbers elsewhere, um, then um, that that can be problematic. The the countries that rank at the top of the good country index overall, generally speaking, don't score remarkably well in terms of the number of refugees that they host. Um, Sweden, which is top of the list, is above average. And so is Germany, of course. But countries like Denmark, Canada, the Netherlands, Finland, France, the UK, which are the the other top 10 countries in the Good Country Index, they're just average. And in fact, Spain, which ranks ninth, is somewhat below average. So, uh, you know, it's not surprising. It, it, it uh, it, It doesn't have a massive impact on the overall ranking of any country, because just like any other one of the data sets, it's only 135th well, two thirty-fifths of the overall score. But it's a point and it's in there and it's counted. But there are some countries that are disproportionately involved in receiving migrants and refugees, these sort of gateway countries. Sure. The the numbers are huge if you uh, compared to to Western Europe. If you look at Jordan and Turkey and one or two other places, they take in enormous numbers of people. Do you think that Turkey, for example, gets recognition as as a place receiving refugees and and migrants? And what kind of uh, experience do the migrants have? Do they have a positive feeling about Turkey? Do Do we know that? This I don't know. One certainly hears a lot of noises coming out of Turkey that and, and also Jordan, that the West doesn't seem to notice or appreciate the significantly larger migrant burden that those countries take on. Now, obviously, there are political complexities behind this. These are very often deals, deals with the European Union in the case of, of Turkey. And yes, of course, there is that question about um, what, what sort of uh, treatment is meted out to the migrants and refugees who end up in those countries. And that's often the beginning of a rather of a rather unpleasant discourse from rich countries that say, oh, yes, they take in lots of them, but they're basically just in camps and they don't treat them well, as if it's right. somehow better to take a smaller number and treat them well than it is right. to take in a large number and treat them badly. I don't really think those, that's a calculus that can easily be made. And what kind of impact do you see of internal politics around uh, accepting migrants? How is this playing into reputations of countries? And what are the what are the big cases of uh, people being concerned about a country's attitude to migrants? 
Like so many fundamentally domestic issues, people don't notice it nearly as much as is imagined. So, for example, one of the subjects that comes up a lot when you talk to populations in a given country is, oh, our, the number of migrants we receive or the way we treat them is so poor, it must be so damaging for our image. In reality, uh, it seems that most people aren't really aware of how migrants are treated or how many of them are accepted. There are countries that stand out, of course, and as ever, it depends how geographically close to that country you are. If it's a neighbour or a near neighbour, you're more likely to know what's going on there. So. In Western Europe, for example, most people are well aware of the fact that Germany um, takes in quite a large number of migrants. Angela Merkel's famous um, open door policy did not pass unobserved and people generally admire Germany for this. It's very complex, as, as we all know, uh, in, in Sweden. Sweden, like many countries, is finding it very difficult to, to manage um, the whole issue of migration. It's quite interesting, actually, how much heat the topic generates there. I actually, I have um, my own homegrown conspiracy theory. I was beginning to feel left out that there are so many conspiracy theories out there and I didn't have one of my own. I've noticed for a, for a long time that the Swedish uh, far right often uh, furiously and publicly criticizes Sweden itself. And there are tropes like, for example, so-called rape capital of the world, which, as far as I can understand it, was a misunderstanding of the data. It was something to do with the way that Sweden started uh, reporting rapes that broadened the category uh, and made it look like a larger number. I'm not 100% sure about that, but that was the way, the way it looked. And it was, interestingly, the, it was Swedes more than anybody else who jumped on that and furiously repeated it in public, on social media. And you begin to get the feeling that um, Sweden is its own worst enemy as far as doing it down is concerned. And then you notice that it's the right that does this, and it's the anti-migrants. And my conspiracy theory is that the far right in Sweden has decided that they're going to debrand their country by picking every possible opportunity they can to make it sound like a hellhole in order to put off migrants coming there. And the things that they talk about are precisely the things that would put off a family wanting to move to Sweden. The fact that um, women get raped in such large numbers, the fact that there's so much gang violence, the fact that you don't get a pension when you're older and the government lets you starve. These are all uh, partly or largely myths as far as I can see. And Sweden does an awful lot better than most other countries. And yet these are the stories that are repeated over and over and over again. Just like any other conspiracy theory this, theory, this one falls apart because it makes the fundamental error of assuming that groups of people can act from common purpose rather than sheer blind instinct. Uh, and right. it's, so, so it's sort of like the joke branding that was put out by Washington State about all the rain they have and how horrible the weather is and uh, to try and put off people from visiting and sort of keep the Pacific Northwest pristine. But I, you know, I wonder how how uh, identities are changing because you know implicit in the whole issue of migration is, you know, the idea of your of your country's identity, and we're seeing many countries now are adopting or or are evolving into countries where their essence is an idea, the way on paper the United States was. Are you seeing that countries? articulating an identity in terms of the country actually belonging to people who are there by choice? Oh, very, very often. But the trouble is that in almost every case, it's a conflicted sense of identity because some people share one version of it and others share another. 
you know, America land of immigrants, uh, one would have thought was a fairly well-established uh, version of the American identity story. And yet very plainly, a large number of, numbers of Americans who don't buy that particular version. And it's the conflict between all of those identities that's at the heart of this. But I think that identity is a fascinating and very topical issue. And um, we're, we're going to talk about that in another episode. But I think that one needs to be very careful that one doesn't somehow, with all of this talk about image and identity, sidestep the fundamental issue about migration, which is that it's a moral issue. And if I may, I, this is awful behavior, but I want to just actually read something I myself wrote on this, because I'll never say it as well as I did when I wrote it down. This is something I find myself believing quite firmly. At heart, the decision whether to accept migrants of various kinds surely boils down to a simple question of comparing your discomfort with theirs. Indeed, it's a basic human obligation for us always to measure our own comfort against that of other people. If we can reduce somebody else's severe discomfort by undergoing some mild discomfort ourselves, then we have a clear duty to do so. At present, many of us in the so-called developed world are getting the equation seriously wrong. We are refusing to undergo even very mild and temporary discomfort in exchange, not merely for the comfort, but for the actual survival of many thousands of others. Some of us aren't even refusing to undergo actual discomfort. We're refusing to contemplate a rather vague notion of possible social change. That's people saying, I don't like the idea that my local shops might become a bit different. So we shouldn't overcomplicate that. This is a moral failure, pure and simple. And we are put to shame by countries like Jordan and Turkey, which for ever, whatever reasons take in hundreds, if, if not thousands of times more, more migrants than we do in rich Western countries. And I, I just don't think that one can talk about migration without just remembering that fundamental premise. Here are people who are at best in discomfort, the so-called economic migrants, at worst in danger of their lives, refugees in many cases. And we're somehow failing to balance that against our own comfort or discomfort. We're saying, no, nah, I don't like what that would do to my local street. Yes, yes. And it's, of course, you know, it becomes especially ironic when religion is brought into the equation. And, uh, uh, you know, you have uh, people who adhere to the religion founded by the man who said, when I was a stranger, you took me in saying, no, I don't want to. I don't want anybody new coming in because it would disrupt things. And um, I, I think there's a lot of irony in this whole issue. And a lot of hypocrisy as well. I mean, the, 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 the distinctions that you and I both here made every day, usually by elites of various kinds, uh, between the different types of migrant and the different types of people who want to come to another country for a period, a short period or a long period, it hardly matters. And sometimes if they've got a lot of money, we call them talent or we call them tourists, and we try to attract them. If they don't have a lot of money, we call them refugees or migrants. But they're all people doing the same thing. They're all people spending time, willingly or unwillingly, in a country that is not the country of their birth. And we tend to distinguish between them on the basis of how much money they bring, which is rather curious, because actually it might make more sense to distinguish on the basis of how much work they want to do. The issue of identity is interesting because do you want to think of your country as being a country which does good in the world, a country which helps people, or do you keep your country as kind of a, 
a sort of an open-air museum to the ideas of your grandparents. I was very interested in some of the changes that happened in Ireland as Ireland began thinking about itself as a place that not only sent migrants out, but Mm. brought migrants in. And uh, one of the people involved in, in that campaign would talk about people being Irish by choice, using that kind of rhetoric to frame new arrivals in Ireland in a different way as actually doing something, contributing something uh, to Ireland, which was impressive when compared to people who had a connection just by fact of birth. Yes. But Ireland knows, Ireland seems to understand, if one can personalise the country for a moment, better than many, um, that the more mixed, the more vibrant, the more changeable, the more cosmopolitan a society is, the, the, the more vibrant it is, the more fun you have. It was Ireland, remember, that back in the 60s, uh, introduced that idea that uh, people who made their money from the arts uh, shouldn't have to pay taxes on their royalties. And that was precisely in order to attract the what became known as the, the creative classes to Irish cities from abroad because the Irish knew and had a strong sense that that would make those cities more vibrant and be better places to hang out. And I think, you know, most of us know that instinctively, that an exciting place is a place that isn't uh, too homogeneous, too monotonous, too single-minded. Well, if you look at the way in which cities talk about themselves, you know, there isn't a city in the world, as far as I can see, that says we're all exact, we're exactly the same. We have no mix uh, whatsoever. City branding and city promotion uh, focuses all the time on small enclaves and groups that have moved in either internally or from other countries. This becomes the badge of what it is to be a global city. Country identity seems to be slightly different. Maybe that's why cities are often more, more attractive, easier to get along in, easier to get along with than that big ticket national identity that seems to be so fraught in so many places. Well, the, 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 the reason for the difference is, is because the, peop- the kinds of people who live in cities, generally speaking, are the kinds of people who prefer to live in a mixed society. I mean, you know, much was made quite rightly of the differences in voting on the Brexit referendum between people living in cities and people living in the country. And for, for various reasons, one finds this uh, almost wherever one goes, that people living in the countryside tend to be more conservative in their views. They tend not to welcome outsiders quite as much. People who choose to live in cities on the whole find that stimulating and they and, and they enjoy it. The contrast or, or even the hostility between the two, between the city and the rural parts, is often uh, part of the problem for countries that they don't know which one they are. I remember when I was working in Latvia, it was particularly striking how different Riga was uh, from the rest of the country. Riga, like many big bustling cities, very cosmopolitan, very internationally minded, welcomes uh, people from all over the world and has done throughout recorded history. Whereas the countryside, not much experience of outsiders, not a huge amount of tourism, not a huge amount of migration in recent generations. And really, it does feel like two different countries. Let's flip this a little, because we've been talking about the receiving experience. But what about the sending experience? What happens to countries that become identified as a source for migrants and refugees? Does that become a major part of their identity? Or, you know, the diasporic sending countries? Yeah, every single individual who leaves a country and goes and lives in another country is an ambassador for that country. 
whether he or she likes it or not, or is aware of it or not. And in a smaller or a bigger way, they are performing the duties of a diplomat, uh, representing their country. And so the answer to your point is, it entirely depends on how those uh, migrants behave. If they are well-educated and well-behaved, and they work hard, and they become model citizens relatively quickly, then that can work wonders for the, for the image of the country. So for example, uh, here in the UK, our relatively recent experience of having large numbers of Polish migrants coming to work in the UK, what that's done is it's created a generally much more positive view of the UK towards Poland, because those Polish migrants on the whole have been honest, polite, hardworking, courteous. They've tried very hard to learn the language and fit in and all the rest of it. And you can see the consequence of that. And one of the things I've discovered from the Nation Brands Index over the years is that in the countries, for example, where there is the where there are the largest groups of, for example, Turkish migrants, we're talking about Germany, the Netherlands, perceptions of Turkey tend to be the most negative. Now, that's not the fault of the diaspora, poor people, because they're just doing their best and trying to fit in. But for various reasons, that particular chemistry of what happens to a Turkish person when they go to the Netherlands, difficulty in getting yourself absorbed and being absorbed, education, language, culture, zoning, and all the other things that happen, all of this conspires to give a general impression to the uh, resident community that these people don't fit in. And therefore, the perceptions of the country that they come from tend to go down and down and down. We're finding at the moment that uh, people are starting to learn, for example, a subtler distinction between, say, Afghanistan and Syria in many Western countries where migrants have turned up from those countries. Beforehand, they were simply two trouble spots and you couldn't, you couldn't see the difference between them. Syria was a place where people fought and there was trouble all the time. Afghanistan was a place where people fought and there was trouble all the time. Um, however, after a few years of noticing that many of the, of the Syrian arrivals are highly educated, highly qualified, proud, dignified people, etc. Not that the Afghans are not proud and dignified, but they generally speaking find it harder to get those high level jobs because they didn't have them back home. Many of the Syrians did. And so gradually we see people slowly modifying and adapting their perception of the country these people come from. It's still very crude. It's still very haphazard. It's still a bit random. And it still takes a very, very, very long time for a society to get used to the idea of foreigners, especially if they look very different, if they're actually a different color, as well as a different language, different religion, uh, and so on and so forth. Where do you see sending countries effectively connecting to their migrant populations? It's obviously a, a sad fact that the majority of the countries that produce the largest numbers of outgoing uh, migrants aren't really in a position to manage anything because they're in such a bad way, um, coping poorly with severe domestic problems, that the prospect of them being able to stay in touch with their, um, with their migrant population once it's overseas, overseas is a very distant prospect. Mm -hmm. But if you look at countries where it's a slower, longer established pattern, like, for example, Mexicans in uh, North America, then you can see um, governments attempting in various different ways to try and keep in touch with them. When I was advising President Calderon in, in Mexico uh, back in 2012, 2013, we looked very hard at this, this extraordinary phenomenon of there being at least 12 million Mexicans living in the United States. And what an extraordinary diplomatic force 
that could and should be for Mexico. One of the things that we looked at, I don't know if it ever went anywhere, is the idea of actually setting up a loyalty scheme, a little bit like the ones that supermarkets offer, where a Mexican uh, migrant living in the United States could actually be a cardholder and could gain points from doing things that would uh, cast Mexico in a better light. Uh, <laughs> the, um, a, a, a little bit of a fiendish scheme, so maybe it's just as well if it didn't happen. Out there, one does hear occasionally about uh, different attempts by governments to, quote unquote, make use of these populations because they are very important. One, one thing that strikes me looking at the numbers involved is that our gut reactions around migration are actually quite unreliable. I looked at some UN figures that came out in 2017 on origins, destinations of migrants. And what was clear is that the migration we see on the news, which tends to be transcontinental migration, people from Africa going to Europe, people from uh, Asia going to North America, the, this is very unusual. Mm. And the, the big flows of migration are within regions. Mm -hmm. The exception there being people moving from North America to uh, sorry, from South America to North America, which uh, w which we would think of as being within the same region, but mm. people in the United States see as coming from another continent. And sure. part of their problem is a kind of a mental barrier against South America. But, for, you know, mostly we're seeing the big flows happening within regions. Now, my extension from this would be that what could be happening with migration is the creation of regional identities so the movement of people actually strengthening an idea of an Asian identity rather than a specific identity to a particular nation state. The same in Europe, same in, in, in Latin America. So these sort of pan-national, transnational, regional uh, identities coming out of this because, you know, like I say, the numbers really are quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the reason for that is presumably a simple practical one that uh, yes. short migration routes are cheaper and simpler and quicker. And if you want to go somewhere else, either because your prospects are poor or because you can't stay, you will not go further than you have to. And it would be difficult and expensive and time consuming to go to the other side of the world. Who would do that? Yeah, the numbers, it, it's something like uh, uh, 41 million Europe-to-Europe Europe migrants, 63 million Asia-to-Asia Asia migrants, uh, 19 million Africa-to-Africa uh, Africa migrants. Africa-to-Europe migrants, you're talking only 9 million. So a lot more happening within the bloc. And, and bear in mind that quite a lot of that migration is taking place on foot. So again, it's not really very surprising if it, if it remains uh, regional. To your point, does this over time uh, produce a, a sort of broader, maybe fuzzier uh, regional identity? Who knows? I mean, the nation state is a relatively recent invention anyway. And perhaps what we're simply returning to is the, is the previous notion. Yes, I remember the, the first page in every British history book with all those arrows going in saying Jutes, Angles, Celts, all those. Uh, that was where the nation came from in the case of Britain. Uh, I remember Billy Bragg, when talking about this, says, thank God for the hyphen. He says, Anglo-Saxon hyphen. We're two things, at least two things. We've always been more than just uh, one thing. And I think that's really helpful to remember that mixture is part of the creation of places. Yes. And, and, and people, of course, like to have and enjoy having multiple layers of, of belonging. 
that's part of the human condition that nobody, few people at any rate, want to belong to just one group. It's nice to feel that um, you have a fairly local belonging to your village or your town or your city or, or whatever it is. You have a national belonging, the country that you come from, but also very likely a regional one as well. So, you know, in the same way that one often hears people saying, I am from Ethiopia, but above all, I'm an African. You hear that more often than you hear, I am from Korea, but above all, I'm an Asian. But again, the word Asian doesn't really have very much meaning, or at least it has shifting meanings depending on who's using the word. The the difference between what Brits mean by Asian and what Americans mean by Asian uh, is quite confusing sometimes. I think it's uh, quite useful to distinguish between South Asia and East Asia, but that's something that often doesn't happen. They tend to be lumped in together. And I really don't see that somebody from Bangladesh or the Maldives has got an enormous amount in common with somebody from Laos or Cambodia. And yet by, by some standards, they are Asians. I mean, as we'll see when we come on to talk about identity later on, these words, these terms are immensely problematic and create many more problems than they solve. And it would be nice to imagine a world where we could just drop them all together um, and stop this habit of generalizing about people, trying to put them in clusters, because it only causes trouble. And if only one could start thinking about people as individuals. In, in terms of good practice for a nation state, you know, looking back uh, uh, historically on where countries have behaved well, I'm struck by the moments in British history when Uh, refugees and asylum seekers were seen as an asset for the country. So during World War II, people from Poland, people from Czechoslovakia were welcomed in the UK and and had special classes taught by the British Council so that they would speak English, understand British political values in anticipation of a later return to their home country. So they were treated as like exchange visitors. And there are places in the world where a refugee experience has built a a living link to the country that looked after those people. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you ran into this when you were in Chile, but I was very, uh, (laughs) I was quite touched when people were talking about their experience of foreign countries and would say, oh, I had a Pinochet scholarship to Spain or uh, Mexico or, or Venezuela. And you realize what they're saying is that they were a refugee from the regime, but they got so much out of their connection to Spain or Venezuela or, or, or Mexico that they now feel uh, and speak as if they had a, a scholarship to study there as part of an exchange diplomacy program because it's given them a special feeling. And I think it's great to run into these stories of human connection where what a country did when somebody was in difficulty now gives a connection and a feeling of gratitude that brings those, those places together. It's great when it happens, but in almost every case, it's so inconsistent and so unreliable. I mean, you you know, you mentioned the particularly uh, good treatment that was given to Poles and Czechs when they came to the UK, but then what about the, the 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 arrivals from the West Indies and the shocking treatment that was meted out to them? Where does that come from? What is it? I mean, critical race theory would say pure and simply that's just racism, but that seems like a inadequate explanation one would like to go a little bit deeper than that where does where does this come from at what level does a society decide that it's worth treating uh, certain categories of migrants with care and with warmth and other ones you just let them sink or swim and others uh, you make them feel positively unwelcome it's more complex than just race because if you look at how black american troops were treated 
during World War II, they reported much better treatment in the UK than they experienced back home in the United States. And yet the UK was very hostile to incomers from the Caribbean. So there's this irony of a national or international context where one group is seen as, as good, another group is seen as uh, negative. These different categories seem to interact with each other for positive or negative impact. Well, I think in the purest sense of the term, what we're looking at here is prejudice. In other words, the, the prejudging of people before you've met them, according to what you believe about them as a group. And I think that's possibly in some ways a more useful term than racism, because racism assumes that this is something to do with your race. Now, there may well be racial prejudice going on, but there could also be other things at the same time, and it's, and it's multi-layered. And I think the difference in experience that people have when they go to another country is primarily dictated by the absence or presence of various prejudices. What people believe about the sort of person you must be primarily because of where you come from. It is literally the only thing they know about you. Some of the positive treatment can be ascribed to a, uh, a in inverted commas, positive prejudice where they might have seen a particular group uh, well portrayed in the media or heard music from a particular group and, and, and have a positive feeling that comes from that. And to go back to the case of black soldiers from the US in World War II, that I think there was also a, a desire to show, to perform Britishness at the expense of white Americanness. And as British people became aware that black Americans were discriminated against, they were in the US, they wanted to show their superiority to the United States in that aspect of behavior, whereas there was no comparator behavior for, for people coming in from the Caribbean. Yeah. And, and, and curiously, patriotism plays a role here, because in certain circumstances, people may well feel that it's the patriotic thing to do to make the country look good by treating arrivals with yes. um, warmth and respect. Oh, and I'm sure that was the case around refugees during the war, though there are places where uh, refugees would, were discriminated uh, um, against, and you hear stories uh, uh, in Australia, for example, of wartime refugees being, being mistreated. As we think about this in terms of how countries characterize themselves, where do you think we're headed for problems? Where do you see countries that are closing themselves off to the idea of bringing in refugees, bringing in migrants? I'm troubled by the attitudes that I see in Japan. Mm. Uh, and that seems to be really out of step with how everyone else is behaving around the world right now almost a, they seem to be like holding a dam against people in need seeking asylum and so forth yes well japan for for many many centuries has has played this card of having a somewhat hermetic culture an almost impenetrable culture that others can gaze at from afar and admire and learn from but not penetrate you would occasionally get the rare example of a traveler from another land who would go to Japan, who would somehow or other, after some difficulty, become accepted. Writers like Lafcadio Hearn, for example, who wrote beautifully and eloquently about the experience of being a foreigner, Irish-Greek in his case, I think, uh, living in Japan. But the, the, the payment for that is absolute humility to the culture. You have to learn the language to a high degree of perfection. You have to study the culture and so on and so forth. And then you're, you're, you're accepted. And this is 
worked well for Japan for, for a very long time. And because it is such an extraordinary country and such an extraordinary culture, the rest of the world has been happy to look on and continue to admire it. But today, I think there's a, there's a bit of a conflict there. People are noticing, as you say, well, here's a country that doesn't seem to be helping in certain key areas. And what are they doing on migration when the need is so acute? And, you know, it's worth just reminding ourselves here that the the numbers that we've seen, the numbers you quoted before from UNHCR about the millions of people who, who are beginning to move, this is just a foretaste, just an aperitif for the hundreds of millions that climate change is about to unleash on all of us. And uh, it makes no difference whether you believe in anthropogenic climate change or not. Uh, that's what's going to happen. And there are going to be that's hundreds right. of millions of people moving. Right. And I think that uh, Japan's rather exclusive, rather hermetic sort of cultural stance is going to have to be uh, changed and opened and upgraded. Otherwise, it's going to find itself very unpopular. That's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People, Places, Power. I'm still Nick Cole. And I'm still Simon Anhalt.